0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
2: What number are we thinking of?
0: 69, dudes! It's a
3: 1969, okay. walk across the U.S.A. It's another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do It's
0: another year for me and you Another year with nothing to do
2: Film is not an immediate art form. Production can take weeks or months or more to complete. The cinema of 1969 reflects the turmoil of 1968, The political upheaval and protests that went on around the globe, from the Tet Offensive in January of 1968, the general strikes of France in May '68, the riots that ravaged America from Washington, D.C. to Chicago to Kansas City throughout the spring and into summer, political crises in Poland, Pakistan, West Germany, Scandinavia, Czechoslovakia, Spain, Italy... France, Brazil, and the UK and Yugoslavia. If 1968 is the year that shook the world, then the fallout of that year should be writ large on the silver screen in 1969. Throughout the year, we'll be looking at several films from 1969 and how politics, economics, religious, societal, and intellectual shifts in 1968 were reflected in the cinema of 1969. Join us, won't you?
4: Et en venant ici, une voiture a essayé de m'écraser. Ils ont appris que j'avais des révélations importantes à vous faire. Et tu t'es cogné contre le trottoir. J'ai la preuve de l'assassinat du député. De
0: l'accident. Vous avez bel et bien sur les bras, cet assassinat.
4: Vous vous égarez, mon ami
0: Pourquoi les idées que nous défendons
4: provoquent-elles une telle violence tu
2: crois que c'est une tentative d'assassinat J'étais à la manifestation, j'ai tout vu. J'ai même des photos.
0: Il paraît qu'on veut assassiner le docteur. Et alors c'est pas la première fois, non De toute façon, chacun de nous a pris ses risques. Et c'est tout à fait par hasard, bien sûr, que vous vous trouviez sur les lieux de l'assassinat. Vous avez dit assassinat
4: Bien sûr, Madame, et ça ne fait que commencer.
2: Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Eric Cohen. Hey. Also back in the booth is Mr. Keith Gordon. Hello, everyone. Our appreciation of 1969 continues with a look at Costa Garvis's Z, based on a book by Vassilis Vassil, Vassilikos. Oh, this God. is going to be long. This, this is, is <laughs> going to be, yeah. Not only do I have that, but then I'm like, how do I pronounce this name? Well, I can say the film stars Yves Montan as a political activist who is killed after a rally. The film also stars Jean Louis. Trenton as the investigator of the incident, of the investigator of the incident who manages to uncover a vast conspiracy. We will be spoiling this film as we go along. So if you haven't seen Z, definitely track it down and watch it. We will still be here. So Eric, when was the first time you saw Z and what did you think? I saw Z a long
1: time ago. I would say the first time It hit my radar. I was in my late teens, early 20s. I I got on this, like, kind of political thriller kick. I was, like, really into Salvador, the Oliver Stone movie. I hadn't seen Missing yet. Missing had come out around that time. And so I started, like, checking out all these, like, political thrillers, like All the President's Men and stuff like that. And then, you know, I read about Z. And uh, I remember checking it out, remember really, really liking it and would revisit it. I, I haven't, it's, uh, when I watched it recently, it was about the third time I saw it. So the first time I saw it, I remember ma- it made an impression on me, but mostly it kind of fell into this, uh this thing I was into at the time, these sort of political theaters with this like historical backdrop. And at the time, I remember kind of lunking it in with like these other kind of similar kind of political, historical thrillers like Salvador, to a certain extent, Cuba by Richard Lester, that had a bit of a satirical bent to it.
2: Keith, how about you?
5: I think I was about 12 or 13. I was too young when the film first came out. In 69, I would have been eight years old. But my parents were you know, very big on exposing me to all sorts of different kinds of art when I was a kid. And I think I was around 11 or 12, and it must have been re-released in New York where I was growing up, uh, because I know I saw it in a the theater, and I know I was old enough to kind of get it. And it was really one of the first films, it was when I was falling in love with cinema. And I, I think around the same time, my dad took me to Z and Paths of Glory. And those are my two first exposures to political cinema and how powerful films could be and getting you to, you know, think about the world politically and power and, and, and corruption. And, it, and I just remember my head getting really spun around by it. And, and then being very interested in that as a genre and, and much like what, what Eric was saying, kind of for me, that it came out of that, that I then got really excited by films like Parallax View and you know all those the, the kind of more paranoid political thrillers that were made in America. But this predated all those uh, and uh, really excited me about like oh my god, you can like get people to rethink about what they think about the world if you do it right. So that was very exciting, and very powerful to me, and and it was uh, it was so challenging and so upsetting and so and yet at the same time it was just a wildly entertaining movie. I mean, I you know, you could be a you could be 12 years old and still get caught up in it and it worked as a thriller so well and still made you think about all this other stuff.
2: The term political thriller both of you guys mentioned it and that's how I described this movie to my wife before I actually watched it. I was like, "Oh, well, we're going to watch Z this political thriller." It doesn't feel like a thriller sometimes because we kind of know more of the twists and turns than our protagonists do because of the way that Garvis is is showing us things. But yeah, we'll definitely, we'll have to talk about that. So this was a, a first time viewing for me. This is one where I was looking at our list of movies that we already had in place. And then I said, you know, we've got all these movies from 1969. So let me see what else is out there. And when I saw Z on the list, I said, I've never seen this movie. I've always wanted to see it. It forced me to sit down and watch it. And my God, I was just riveted by the film from the very beginning. I mean, that opening montage of all of those different uh, medals and that incredible musical score just grabbed me and pulled me in. And I was with this movie through the entire rest of the runtime. And I was almost breathless afterwards and then wanted to pretty much you know in the old days i would say rewind it and watch it again i wanted to just like hit play again and see the whole thing again because it was so fast and fascinating
5: one of the things i love most about the film is the editing and the pace and i mean it you know in terms of the thriller political thriller idea yes it may not be conventional that you kind of get ahead of where it's going at times but but the energy of the film is very much a a thriller sort of energy it's just you know, the way he – everything's just quick and fast and and the way he'll do his tra- scene transition so often where you're basically looking at the same person and then you, you cut around and you realize, oh, now it's a different scene with that same person. And it, it's just a way to give the film a tremendous amount of energy, which I think is one of its real strengths. The other thing about that opening montage, it, it has – the first shot of the film is a kind of brilliant encapsulation of the movie in a completely – metaphoric way but and usually i hate those kind of things that feels too obvious but the very first thing you see is this completely out of focus image and it's like what am i looking at and then it comes into focus and you kind of realize what you're seeing and it's a a medal that like one of the one of the generals would have worn or one of the colonels and i just thought what a great great sort of metaphor for the whole movie that like okay things are out of focus what am i seeing and then the truth kind of comes in and usually again that would make me roll my eyes and yet somehow in the way he does it it's like no that's great I don't know why it never occurred
1: to me the, the first or second time I saw, it, but seeing it, re- re- revisiting it recently, I realized for the first time what a funny movie it is. There, there was moments in there that's, they're, they're darkly humorous, but there's some great, like, visual gags that that's just, just kind of, like, really, really take it to another level. Like the scene where um, they're watching all the protesters outside the hotel. And the police grab like a couple of the protesters and what they do, they start cutting his hair. I thought that was hilarious. Also, the whole thing bits where they're going through uh, all the higher ups in the, in the police department and how each one leads through a certain room and they keep going to the wrong door. And then you see like an increase of press presence every time they go down the same hallway. So I thought there were like elements in there that were like very funny and very darkly comedic, which I, I hadn't noticed the first couple of times I'd watched it for some
2: reason. I want to say each of those soldiers also says, I'd rather kill myself than be dishonored. And of course, I don't think any of them kill themselves. Yeah, those opening credits, just the way that the credits are popping on screen, and then that amazing, like, you know, we're all used to this whole thing, like, any similarities between persons living or dead is purely coincidental or whatever, and in this one, it just says, any similarity is not coincidental, it is intentional, and then it's signed by the producer and the director, and it's like, wow, okay, we're in for a ride now.
5: And that, again, that's part of the, I think, you know, because what Eric was saying, I completely agree with, that's part of the, the humor of it. I mean, it's not funny, haha. But but they were putting things, I mean, that's a really f- fun way to get an audience, you know, off off balance and yet into the middle of it. There is a sense of fun, I think, in the storytelling, which is really weird because it's a thing with murder and and corruption and all this stuff. But, but again, there's an entertainment in the way that they do it and the way they're being provocative and the way... You know, and, and throughout the film, it's this interesting thing because so much of the film is shot in a very documentary, naturalistic style, but then they'll break that. And they'll kind of go, yeah, this is a movie. You're watching a movie. And, and I think that that's part of what the whole strategy of the film is, which is to to be really entertaining at the same time that it's also upsetting and challenging. And that when, I think when, when Kostakovich is at his best, he, he kind of manages to keep both of those balls in the air. Where it's just an entertaining, great telling of a, of a great story, and then there's all this other meaning with it, but it doesn't ever feel like it's good for you. You know, so many things that are political or serious or has ideas that you feel like, okay, take your medicine and watch this movie. And he just manages to make it like this amazing ride, like you said, um, and have a sense of humor and and yet get all of these really dark and heavy ideas in it at the same time.
2: Yeah. In the American remake, it would be a lone trumpet playing somewhere in the distance to indicate that it's a military thing. And then a very solemn fade up that it would say based on true events, you know, and with this, it's just like, no, we're intentionally going to be talking about people. And then that made me as the viewer immediately think, okay, well, this is based on real events. And who are these people? Who is this supposed to be? Who is that supposed to be? And then it actually made me you know 1969 i might have known who some of these people were in 2020 probably not so then it made me actually start to look up a whole lot of stuff and see what the real case was see what the similarities were and then i love at the end when it's just like oh by the way here's this guy here's this actor and here's the real guy it's like oh okay you are really not pulling any punches here this is great
5: I love when the film breaks that fourth wall and it does it a number of times in the movie and kind of goes, you know, whether it's covering up the faces of the king and queen, whether it's, you know, having the character, the reporter, turn to the camera, essentially, and sum up the story, uh, really kind of cool that way.
1: Yes, I love that sort of Brechtian ending where the actor addresses the audience and basically gives you know gives the lowdown on what happened to everybody after uh, everything went down. Even though we know in real life that since this is inspired by what happened in Greece, the the, the examining magistrate Jean Louis Trintignan, Trin- 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 his character wound up becoming prime minister of Greece later down the road. But I, what I thought, I mean, Mike, you mentioned the thing this was a Hollywood movie. I, I would say that the way political movies that are kind of, I would say if someone attempted a Z today, it would be kind of like, you know, it would have like a cast of of people from Saturday Night Live in it. And there'd be like a left field musical sequence and people constantly breaking the fourth wall. What What I like about Z is they don't really do a lot of that. What's done there is very subtle. And that's what I think makes the ending all the more impactful. Because not only do we have that, like, you know, whole thing delivered by the actor at the end, who I believe was one of the producers of the movie. Am I, am I, you're right. Uh, but then we have that whole list of things
2: that wound up being banned. That Which is fascinating. I love the one where it's like exclamation marks and question marks all mixed together. Like, why was this banned? It was just like, here's this thing. Can you believe that this was banned?
5: Well, and the list is is so, again, it's it's even funny. I mean, it's horrifying, but it's so absurd. I mean, it's everything from the Beatles to you know. Uh, I think there's a thing I, I was in the commentary. Uh, there, I think they were mentioning that at one point it says that acknowledging that Socrates was homosexual. To I mean, it's like this insane mix of like. I mean, you can't hardly even read the list; it goes by so quick. But everything you see, it's like really. And and they, they they literally banned the letter of the alphabet, which is you know the letter Z, which is just I mean, both horrifying, but also like something out of you know, uh, Terry Williams, Brazil. I mean, it, it's so absurd. I mean, it, we're going to ban this letter of the alphabet because we don't like what people associate with
2: it. Eric, the movie that you were describing with all the SNL characters and breaking the fourth wall and stuff as you're describing that, I'm just like, well, that's kind of like the big short almost.
1: Yeah. I kind of like the big short or the, or the recent film uh, on what's his
2: name, our, our former vice president. Right. I love to all of the, those quick cuts still continue into this initial thing where we have this uh, guy standing up in front of a room of all of these what seem to be very important people and giving this whole thing about how you are to treat your vines. And then the general stands up and starts to turn that into a whole metaphor about how we have to treat the youth and that we need to spray them three times and that we need to get to them when they're at this age, then once more in high school, and then also once more when they're in college. And it seems like they're really missing the boat when it comes to the college stuff, because Almost right after we're, afterwards, we're introduced to who we're going to really follow through this, which are kind of the radicals, these students or post-students. They don't seem like they're necessarily that age, but we get introduced to these guys. And again, it's this really interesting mix of different types of people, and I really like these guys. Almost from the get-go, I feel very in tune with who these people are.
1: The thing that really struck me about watching Z and, and as loath as I am to bring in current politics, you know, when you, when I watched this film in the past, you can watch it from a distance and say, oh yeah, this is what happens in countries like that. Watching it now, I'm thinking, God, we're seeing like the same mock outrage, fake patriotism, you know, that we see going on with our, our, you know, current politicians with regard to certain situations going on in our government. Uh, you see strange, the strange bedfellows between uh, the ruling political elite and certain far-right, a.k.a. alt-right groups, you know, stuff like that. And there's a lot of stuff that's going on in there. was like, oh, my God, this is so prescient. So, something that, like, I would have never have thought of 10 years ago, even five years ago.
5: I completely agree. I mean it felt very different watching it right now because what it captures, and, and a lot of the world has gone through this, but it has not been so much part of America, is watching a country that had been a democracy heading into ever deeper authoritarianism. And that's never been a major issue here. And I think right now we're sort of as close to fault going down that road as we ever have been. So suddenly it feels very close to home. I mean that always had been growing up in America, whatever your politics – you know, that kind of movement to a strong man, not constitutional government is something that, you know, has been really dealt with everywhere. I mean, name a country that's been around long enough. They've gone through that process. We really haven't since the revolution, uh, you know, back in 1776. And, and this may be as as close to that feel, the beginning of that feel of that kind of turn as, as we've ever really encountered.
2: Yeah, as I see Yves Montand's body being hit by the three-wheeler, I'm just like, oh, it's kind of like driving into a crowd in Charlottesville. And as I see all of the thugs in the crowd, I'm just like, well, this seems to be like they are paid protesters, perhaps. So, yeah, I really was seeing a lot of stuff, and I don't think it's just like this desperate need to connect our events to this stuff. I think it's definitely following that same pattern.
1: And using loyalty to party as a means to a threat. Which we're seeing a lot of lately. That, that was the stuff. And trying to wrap it around, you know, ad hominem rhetoric, the whole, like, fake, what is a patriot, you know, what do you believe in kind of stuff. That, that, that whole list of ridiculous things they banned, you could almost imagine, like, you know, a certain political party in our country just, like, throwing things out there to see what sticks, like spaghetti just so you know there's some you know senators or congressmen can 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 say hey I did that so I did my part you know I did my part for my you know uh, constituency whatever I mean I just I just had shivers witnessing this whole thing unfold on in Z and I was just thinking wow this is just like what's happening right now
2: this is really really weird I can take claim for naming them freedom fries instead of french fries and then you get a nice, healthy dose of anti-Semitism in this movie as well with this whole thing of the one guy who's part of the, the resistance, the left wing, and uh, they're talking about him, and he's like, oh, man, he's Jewish. And it's like, oh, that's terrible. And then, oh, wait, no, he's half Jewish. Oh, that's even worse. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then even when the general's leaving, they're like, is this another Dreyfus? And it was just like, no, this is worse. You know, Dreyfus was guilty.
1: Right, right. What's really funny is I didn't, I knew... F all about the Dreyfus affair even after I saw the second movie and sometime between that and when I rewatched watched it I had somehow been educated on that situation and, and that really like sat with me when I when I watched it the third time. Another example of things that didn't strike me as funny at first now I'm,
0: I'm totally seeing the humor in. Early in 1895 a Jewish member of the French general staff in the military was accused of and through a secret tribunal was convicted of selling military secrets and he was sentenced to life imprisonment on Devil's Island, which is not a place you wanna go. Now, soon after his conviction and his deportation, I guess, evidence came out that he actually didn't do it, that actually a Catholic uh, official in the military had done this, but there was a real severe pro-Catholic feeling within the military, so they refused to have another trial. And a writer by the name of Emile Zola wrote an article that really attacked the military for falsely accusing this guy and used the phrase j'accuse, uh, which is French for I accuse you. And, and this is something that, that goes down sort of in all history textbooks as sort of this momentous thing, j'accuse. The one thing
5: that seems odd to me, and it's when more recent years struck me about the film, is by painting Vago, one of the two killers, as gay, that feels a little creepy. And it's the one thing in the film that I feel like maybe it's just part of being another era. But it's like we don't get inside anybody else's sexuality besides the G e. Montan character very momentarily. But we don't deal with anyone else's romantic life, anyone else's. And by making this killer very conspicuously gay and re-raising the point multiple times, It does feel like there's a kind of a homophobic aspect to that, which I find bothersome. I mean, I understand that the world was in a different place when the film was made, but it's like I don't know if the real killer was gay, and I don't know if that was in the book, and I don't know. But to me, it's like very hard to justify why making that point multiple times is really an important part of the story. And it's the one thing I don't know if you guys felt it at all, but it always feels a little like no, that's strange.
2: Yeah, the first time when we see him looking up at the guys, um, standing on his balcony and, um, that's Vago and then Yago, his buddy is just like, you only have one thing on your mind. You need to start paying attention. And I was just like, Oh, okay. I see what's going on here. And, and, and yeah, I was just like, why are they painting him as gay? You know, this does feel and repeatedly.
5: Then he goes into the 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 bar and he's trying to pick up the young boy and then there's the relationship with the press guy who he said you know and I just felt like ooh that's a little ugly for a film that's busy attacking anti semitism and all this other stuff but it's okay to say well this guy's a horrible killer and in some way being gay is related to that because why otherwise are you making this point over and over and and again I know the world was in a different place but I do feel like if we're going to give it props for how prescient and modern it is I think it's important to note where it may have been where it may now feel like a little aged and kind of screwed up in terms of some of its attitudes.
2: Yeah. It was a little cringy. I do like though, that he is such a peacock when it comes to like when he's wearing those fake glasses and him with the newspaper guy. And just that he's like, I want to be in the paper and you have to put me in there. And he's really very into that. And then when he finds out that uh, maybe uh, Z is not going to pull through after he's hit him over the head, He's like, oh, no, no, you got to take me out of there. But
5: (laughs) yeah, that's actually a really funny twist.
2: Well, and then I like too that the whole idea of the newspaper and like, cause there's, there's basically two types of newspapers in here where we've got that newspaper going on. Then we've got the other newspaper reporter who the first time I see him, actually the first few times I see him, I'm like, Oh, this is such a gadfly. This guy is just, he's such a pain in the ass. And the way he's always sneaking pictures and just in, in so many people's faces. And I was just like, Oh, this, I can't really stand this guy. And then the way he turns around. I was like, oh, that's nice. But what I was going to say was the whole idea of the newspaper and that, you know, uh, Vago gets his picture uh, in the newspaper and then that prompts the other guy to come forward because he wants his picture in the newspaper, which really helps start to unlock the whole case.
5: Well, it's sort of like everybody's obsessed with their image. Even even these like street thug guys, which is really an interesting thing because I think it also reflects the shallowness of – you know, the time. And again, very much reflective of our time right now where everything's about, you know, social media and, you know, how many people pay attention to you. And it's like kind of more how many people look at you than what you're saying while, you know, while they're looking at you. And and the film sort of does have that feeling about that. Then, you know, the same kind of sense of, you know, it's more important to be famous than to be famous for something good.
2: Right, when those thugs are like posing for the reporter and the guy's like putting up his arms like he's a strong man and stuff. And it's interesting that like just... An hour later into the film, he'll be taking that guy's picture again and uh, using that to kind of point the finger at him. And I think uh, Garvis pointed out that Yves Montan is only in the movie for like 12 minutes, but he casts such an amazing shadow over the entire first hour of the film. And it's really nice. I was re-watching it again today, and he's alive for the first hour. It's like 56 minutes in when they announce that he's been killed, when that he has passed away. And the rest of it, it, it feels like he's there for so much of it, but he's just in these little, very select scenes. Really, the movie... I don't want to say it flips, but it definitely takes quite a turn into now the investigation after an hour into it, which I also think is a really smart way of doing things. The scenes he's in, though, are very meaty. It's not
1: like it's a cameo or like just, you know, a walk-on appearance. It's it's, And that's why it gives the character so much weight. Even Matan is perfectly cast. I don't know if he's anything like the actual real-life counterpart. You know, Yves Montand was sort of like this very—he was like you know a French sexist symbol, popular singer, you know, very much a suave, you know, sort of sophisticated kind of individual. But he's also a bit of a cipher, and so we have this character appear, and he's sort of the quintessential, you know, candidate, so to speak. Regardless of what his his policies are, he's just sort of like this cipher. He's good looking, he's charismatic, he's suave. You know, what really goes on in this guy's head? What is, his, What are his real beliefs and that kind of thing? And it was kind of an interesting peg to have this whole film sort of evolve
5: around. Casting on Tom was sort of a genius stroke. And I think if you hadn't had somebody with that level of charisma, the whole film wouldn't have worked as well. Because he is somebody that, that takes over the space, you know, and he... When he's on screen, your eyes go to him. I mean he's sort of the equivalent – I mean Paul Newman had that here if you were doing you know, the American version where you know there's just something about him where, where it's not even about being a great actor. It's about being this kind of sexy presence and great, great politicians often have that. And, and you know, if you cast just a good actor who didn't have that, I feel like the whole film would have felt unbalanced in a different way.
2: Yeah, when he arrives, it feels like, okay, the situation is under control. Because our our characters that we are familiar with, our, our leftist characters, have been given the runaround, going from place to place, trying to find a hall where they can have this political meeting because, they're, because their original hall uh, immediately cancels on them. And, of course, we're like, okay, well, this is a little suspicious uh, for all the right reasons. Once Montan shows up, he pretty much is just like, okay, don't worry. We'll figure something out. We'll get this done. And he just is such a calming presence to this. Though I like that he's not a saint. And we've got that great moment when, I think it's only just a few minutes after we meet him, when he looks in the shop and sees the woman adjusting the wig. And it becomes this terrific strange flashback of him with another woman and his wife there. And I like that that's how we're introduced to his wife and that we get all of that completely wordlessly. We don't know for sure what's going on, but Garvis presents it to us in such an easy to digest way.
1: There's an aloofness to his character where you're not sure if he's just incredibly courageous or he's, he's incredibly naive like, he thinks that all of the, you know, you know, we've seen these kind of, you know, people that enter into these political situations where they think, oh, I, I can do no wrong. Everyone loves me. This will be fine. And then, you know, it's not. And I got that sense that Yves Montan, there was a bit of a disconnect between what he was supposed to represent and what the reality was. You know, for example, it's obvious that the whole thing was a setup. It's obvious it's the most, it's the most potentially dangerous situation you could get into. I, you know, and yet there was no sense from him that yes, I see this is dangerous, but this is something we have to do. It was more like, oh, it's going to be okay. And I think that that flashback to his having like affairs or an affair is kind of an indication of how this guy isn't really in touch with the consequences of his potential actions.
2: Everybody should know that as soon as the the powers that be say, well, you can use this hall right here they should know that it's a setup. They should know that they're walking into a trap. And yeah, he does seem a little naive though. He does. He's got some self-awareness and I like that. There's actually a moment where he does talk about how things aren't going well with his wife. And then when we meet his wife later on, it's like, well, I wonder what her real feelings are about this guy. And I don't know if we ever really come to grips with that because she is put in this horrible situation. And so it's not like she can, be herself she has to be put into this like grieving widow uh, position and the first time we even see her outside of the flashback she's just being attacked by all these different I can't say paparazzi but photographers just all leaping on her and asking her these really overly personal questions
5: well that's why I think it's so powerful that we see her kind of public face and then we see her alone in that hotel room and we see finally her let her emotions go and that smelling his cologne and doing all these things that to me say that she clearly did still love him, that their marriage may have been a mess and that like many powerful, particularly men, he may have been an egoist and a narcissist who had affairs, but clearly the marriage wasn't just over. Clearly she's feeling a loss that isn't just like, yeah, I, I'm I'm putting on a face. that looks like I'm going to miss him. Clearly she's going to miss him even more than she's letting anybody know because she feels she's got to keep up, the right face that he would have wanted for the public. But I, I find that scene very, very powerful because she does have this kind of, I'm going to keep control until the second she gets alone in that room. And then it all falls away. And, and so I saw a red somewhere, something somebody mentioned Jackie Kennedy, and it does sort of have that sense that like, you know, Jackie Kennedy kept this good face up and then, you know, there were times where she was alone where all the, all the grief could you know finally come out, but no one could see it.
2: I love that strange montage that we get to when she finally learns that her husband has died and the shot of the doctor throwing the sheet over the body and just all of these, again, quick cuts. I mean, because we're going along, like I had mentioned several times, like at this very fast and determined pace, but then you get those moments like that quick montage of the affair and then that montage of what happens when she learns that he's dead. And just those moments really kind of, I don't want to say break the narrative, but they really bring attention to themselves and really make you pay attention.
5: Well, that's what's so cool stylistically, because the film is so generally naturalistic, documentary-like, handheld, very gritty real, And then you'll have these moments that are very stylized and very kind of deliberate and very, you know, very cinematic. And, you know, that shot you mentioned, which is so powerful with the sheet going over the body – which we see like three times in rapid succession. And it's only about a second long. I mean, so it's, it's like the way Costa Garber sort of says, okay, this is going to be this completely gritty naturalistic movie, but then pick his moments to go, except when it isn't. And using that to kind of take you out of the objective into the subjective, you know, after Yves Montan has been hit in the head the first time and he's going in to make a speech and the very subjective shot with the super wide angle lens is he's going, through the crowd of all these people and looking at him. And, you know, it, it's a really interesting device to use in a film that generally sticks to a very here's as it happened sort of storytelling, but then, but then really intentionally shakes you up by saying, but for a moment, we're going to stop being objective. And we're going to go inside somebody's brain and tell you what they're thinking. And, and that's an unusual combination. You don't usually see a film that has this devotion to a kind of documentary feel that will they'll go then again it except, except right now we're going to stop that, and we're going to tell you a whole different way of storytelling because this is inside someone
2: well not just what they're thinking, but then also the use of the sound. I love the use of the sound when he's hit on the head the first time, and it's just that kind of like low rumbling kind of noise as he's walking up the steps, and you get a lot of p o v shots from him as and kind of like a really wide angle lens. And you really are put into that position of, oh my God, that must have really hurt and he is really not doing well. How is he ever going to carry on? And that he can give the speech that it gives is truly remarkable.
5: I think that's also where where Casa Garber, used the backward piece of music. It was uh that's where, you know, it's a all the music is by Theodorakis is is amazing. It's a great score. And of course I didn't realize like we were gonna do this and I started, you know, getting more on the history of it that it wasn't written for the film. These were pieces that already exist. Theodorakis was actually kind of imprisoned at this point. He was in a, he was in a, essentially a concentration camp. So it was not like he was writing the score for the movie. Basically, they used existing pieces of his and then just, just sort of edited them and orchestrated them for the movie. But that was a piece that happened to be, you know, that, that Casagarbis stumbled on playing backwards in the editing room. And it really adds to the surreal and disturbing, again, putting you inside uh, the Yvonne character as his brain is spinning. Um, I think that's really one of the one of the kind of genius little moments, and it's subtle because the music is—it's not like an obvious piece that's backwards. Sometimes some pieces of music you play them backwards and it screams out that's what's going on. Here, there's just something wrong with it, just like there's something wrong with his vision at that moment, and it it really kind of gives you the feeling of what it's like when the world suddenly gets very weird around you.
2: I don't know if I've ever seen a movie where people get hit in the head as much as this movie.
5: I love I love the
1: uh, the fight scene on the flatbed truck what do they call it, the Japanese,
2: the little Japanese. Oh, the kamikaze.
1: Right, where it's like, it's like two children fighting. It's this very sloppy, scrappy kind of fight by these punchy two men, right? There's a lot of moments like that where it just reminds me of sort of like, you know, children bickering or, you know, that, that, that kind of thing that, go, that goes on throughout the movie. But when this movie was made, it was made shortly after the military took over Greece where became a military dictatorship.
5: Yeah, and
2: they couldn't even shoot this in Greece.
5: I think yeah, it was, I think it was 67 or so when, when, when the generals right. completely took over. And so this film was
1: made completed, and then it wasn't, I think it was like 1974, 75, when it was restored to democracy. The gentleman that, was in, that inspired the magistrate, right, wound up being released from prison, and he wound up running for government and became prime minister. I wonder how much in the world's mind this event was, was going on, that that was something they could connect to, or how much of the same, when this film was released in America, they connected it to, like, the Kennedys, as opposed to what was really going on in Greece.
2: Right. I am curious about that, because I, I don't know how... Aware people were of world news. It was a more disconnected world, but then at the same time, it felt like it feels to me, and I could be completely wrong, that people actually paid more attention and that there was less noise at the time. So maybe you did hear about things that were happening in Greece, things that were happening in France and, you know, all the other parts of the world. I mean, it's interesting to me that this was shot in Algiers and what, three years before Battle of Algiers came out, which was really talking about, like, how horrible the situation was there, or at least, you know, in years previous, that they couldn't make this in Greece, they couldn't make it in France, they had to make it in Algiers, and then I like that they don't really talk ever about what country it is, and they uh, sometimes obfuscate which country they're actually in.
5: Although there's so many clues. I mean, part of the fun of it is that they decided to, like, yeah, we're not going to say this is Greece, but we're going to put a million clues in it so that you can't escape it at the same time, which is kind of a fascinating choice. Um, You know, it's like he does it, but that's part of, I think, covering up, you know, that one shot where where the the faces of the king and queen are blocked out. Um, But then, you know, everything from like their costume choices, the music choices, I mean, the the score is by one of the most famous Greek composers that they're, so it's an interesting choice. And And I wish I, I mean, I think it works really brilliantly, but I'd love to have, I'd love to hear customers talk about why the choice to go. We're not going to say Greece, but we're going to do everything in our power to make it completely obvious what we're talking about.
1: It allows you to bring a cast of people to make it come across a little more universal and not so country specific that you get a, you get an idea, a sense of, you know, OK, this is an unnameable uh, government somewhere where this kind of thing can happen. If you make it so specific, it could be too specific and therefore be a little alien.
5: It seems counterintuitive. It seems like it would, it, it would be like sort of, well, muddy and why are you kind of saying it's Greece but not saying it's Greece? But yet I agree with you. I think at the end of the day, it makes it feel much more universal. It, does, it makes it somehow not feel like it's only about Greece but about everywhere where power is abused. I mean the, the film's title is a
1: direct reference to what the protesters used uh, in Greece during that
2: situation. I like this whole idea, too, of the introduction of the ruffians, the counter-protesters. It's very smart to me that we're just starting to learn their faces, and that we don't really learn their, like, we we see the same guys who are going to be disrupting, like, after they have been told you can't be at this hall, there are people at that, the, the first hall to pass out leaflets and say, like, hey, we're moving, we're changing, and then these cars drive up and they say, go get them, just drop off all these guys. And then they go in and they start disrupting stuff. And those are the same dudes that are going to be at the, the, the hall later on when uh Z is giving his speech. And then they're the same guys who are going to beat up the wrong person uh by accident. Um, but they still kick the shit out of them. And they're also the same guys that are going to actually kill Z and that these guys, it's like, We're slowly starting to put their faces together, and it's kind of nice that they're more of a crowd at first, and then it's as the movie progresses and we start to uh, learn more of the extent of the conspiracy, we realize, oh, yeah, no, it was the same, like, what, six or seven guys that were responsible for everything and that we just keep coming back to them and then we actually start to learn who these people are and we learn more about them. We learn how sensitive figs are and that they really need to be cared for.
1: Yeah, I love that that he gave these characters, the the so-called ruffians, which could have been just like faceless sort of like threats. These kind of like quirky kind of character bits. Like, you know, you mentioned the guy who like sells figs. And, and you find out that he was like reluctant to do this thing, not because it was morally wrong, but because oh no, that's the night I'm getting a big fig haul, you know. And <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny and, and very human.
5: Well, I mean, he does that constantly. I mean, yeah, the fact that 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 he's sitting, you know, after he's arrested, he's sitting with some kid who's clearly a street kid and sharing his food with. I mean, there is a really interesting finding moments of humanity for the, for some of the worst villains. You know, not so much for the Upper class ones. I mean, there's no there's no attempt to, to humanize like the the, gen, the head of the police force so that you know. But but the people that were sort of just used by the people in power, he kind of does do an interesting thing of going, you know, they're, they're screwed up. But he does give them little moments of humanity or humor or whatever, which is a pretty interesting choice, and I do think makes the film feel richer.
2: I didn't even realize until I rewatched it that the magistrate is in the first part of the movie, that he's just kind of, they talk to him and everything, and they're talking about going to the Bolshoi, but it's not like he's really present until more towards midway in the movie when it's just like suddenly he becomes our main protagonist and is now the investigator trying to find all of these clues with the help of of other folks along the way but I, I appreciated too that it was just like oh okay I recognize that guy and now watching it the second time I'm like okay I see all these guys were there but the first time you watch it it's just a blur and especially because those quick cuts that we've been talking about, just that the the disruption of that first, um, like the people passing out leaflets, that is cut so fast and is just such a jumble. It, it again, like really, hats off to to Garvis as far as being a, a, a really super competent filmmaker in order to bring that all together. And yet, we still know what's going on.
5: Well, he does do an interesting thing with the with the Jean Louis Troncinian character with with the magistrate. Because I think exactly what you said is, is, is a wonderful piece of film making throughout. That this guy that was never considered by anybody that important, he was kind of an afterthought, ends up being the person that sort of brings down the current government. And it, it's in it, the same way that they didn't see him. Yeah, we don't really see him earlier. He's there, but he slowly takes over the film the way he slowly takes over this whole situation. And it feels like a really cool piece of filmmaking to do it that way. I mean, you could have just introduced him later or, you know, made him very charismatic from the beginning or had him. But here's a guy who's like, you know, clearly was not really super powerful, kind of dumped into the position of, okay, well, you take this over and tell us what we want to hear. And by standing up and deciding, no, I'm actually going to pursue the truth, not what you want, um, but grew into a much more important character historically. And he does the same thing in the course of the
2: film. And we have to talk about those glasses, too. I mean, those glasses were such a great choice because it does help hide him throughout so much of it and make him almost part of the wallpaper until he starts to come out of it.
1: I think the most interesting character trait as an audience we're allowed to witness about this guy is that he likes ice in his beer. And I'm not saying that jokingly. I thought that was very, very interesting, that that was like this little tell, I thought, that that that
2: you know i don't know if we can unlock that we unlock the secret to the examining magistrate right i love the whole thing about how he keeps correcting people and keeps referring to it as the incident and then there's that moment right towards the end when he calls it a murder and his typist is like do you really want me to type murder and it's like he's ready now to admit to himself and to the world that it was a murder and not an incident
5: one of the things I think Costa Garvis does brilliantly in some of his films, and he does the same thing in Missing, although in a different guise, is he has conservative ca- characters, often at the center, who come to learn that they can no longer support the lies that their natural allies are telling. I mean, in, in Missing, he does it with Jack Lemmon's character, who's a conservative middle American, who you know starts out being furious at his daughter-in-law, that she's a leftist, and that she's a commie, and that she's... And by the end of the movie has come to be furious at his own government for for not living up to the morals that he thinks America should have. And in in the same way, it's the same thing with the John Louis Trump character, who is a member of the ruling establishment, you know, is clearly conservative. He wouldn't be in that position if not. But at some point, you know, decides I can't go along with this anymore. I mean, again, not to make everything about the current moment, but you see that with sort of conservatives in America and you've got people like Bill Crystal or whatever, going, yeah, I can't go along with Trump. It's like there's a point where I want my party to win, but not at the cost of what I believe in. And it, it's something that Costa Garvis is drawn to. And I think it's very powerful because I think it opens up the film to people who might not just agree with you from the beginning. I think you have characters who aren't just the people who obviously think one way, get pulled into reexamining what they, what they think. Then you have a chance to do it with the audience. I mean, you're never going to make a political film that's going to convert somebody who utterly disagrees with you but I think the brilliance of this film, the brilliance of Missing, you know, is that people who are maybe apolitical or in the middle or, you know, can watch these movies and may find themselves examining their own beliefs instead of – I think the majority of political films preach the converted and that's valuable. Whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, there's something about rallying up the base and, you know, getting people that, – that has a value. But there's a real value in also getting people to move outside their comfort zone and I think by making those choices of having characters – who aren't always the obvious outsider radical in the, at the core of his movies, it, it helps open it up to people who aren't just already in your corner.
2: And we were talking about the humor earlier, and one of the most humorous scenes for me is when he tricks Vago into admitting that he's a member of this ultra-right group, along with all these other guys, and that he throws down his membership card because he's throwing the guy's words back at him and making and calling him a communist. And the guy's like, what? I'm no communist? That, That whole, like, Lieutenant Columbo scene, I was just like, this is fantastic. I laughed out loud, and I wasn't expecting to laugh as much at this movie as I did. It's also kind of a
1: precursor, a little bit, of when um, he's interrogating the general, and the general turns to his colleague, or turns to the lawyer, and says, Is he a communist? I think he's a communist. He's not a communist.
5: <laughs> well, it's also cool that the only time we see that character express emotion is false emotion. Whenever, the only time he gets mad is when he's doing it to, I mean, in an outward way, is when he's doing it to manipulate somebody. The rest of the time, he's so cool and so together that no matter how awful what he's dealing with is, he's very calm, he's very neutral, he's very zen. he's very centered, and it's almost like when, you, when, he, when he explodes, it becomes a bit of a tell of, oh, he's doing that to manipulate this other person into admitting something or saying the wrong thing, and that's a very, it's a really interesting character choice, and a really interesting actor choice or director choice, but it's a cool thing that he only shows great emotion falsely to get people to, you know, drop their guard.
2: There's also a nice thing in here, too, where Almost right off the bat, when the stuff starts to smell a little funny... It feels like the Colonel is the one who is going to fall on his sword for this whole thing, because you were talking about that scene where um, Iago is uh, feeding the street urchin and there's this whole thing like, oh, this guy was in here all of this time. Why didn't we know? Et cetera, et cetera. And the Colonel's like, oh, well, in the excitement, I didn't tell the general. So that's why he didn't tell you. And he's just is like, all right, it looks like he's kind of maneuvering himself to protect the general. But then when, again, the magistrate is doing the questioning and talking to the general, as soon as the general says that the one man was as lithe as a tiger, which is the exact same words that Iago and Vago used in their testimony, it's just like, boom, the net has been thrown around this guy. It is time to close this case. I just love that.
5: Well, the film is kind of full of great moments. It's part of what makes it so much fun to watch. Is that there's a host of those moments where something very dramatic happens, and 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 the net drops or something clicks together. I mean, there's so many pieces of the puzzle, and every time one gets falls into place, it's really as an audience, it's very thrilling. There's a lot of adrenaline. I mean, for watching a film where where a lot of things happen with people sitting and talking in offices. I mean, there's there is the, the murder and there's there's action, but there's also a lot of talk, and yet, boy, a lot of that talk leaves you with a real rush of adrenaline.
1: I attribute it also to the editing. I don't know, I, I have. I didn't do enough research to find out who actually edited the film but it's it's very slam bang. With the exception of like that sort of first act of the film where it begins with him being hit over the head and the fight on the truck you know, and then after that things tend to just become about talking. People talking to each other. People talking at each other. And yet, it still feels propulsive in a way that's sort of similar to an action film. And
2: the way that it's edited, it's, 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 it's really, really effective. It was edited by the same lady, Francois, is it Bonnot? B-O-N-N-O-T? And she was working. Just all the way up till 2011. And she worked a lot actually with, uh, Julie Tamor. She did, uh, Across the Universe and Titus. And I can't remember. Did Tim- Taymor do Frida as well? But she yeah. did a ton of stuff. And yeah, she continued to work with, uh, Costa Garvis on things like Missing. And yeah, she was, uh, and even worked with <laughs> Polanski on the tenant. Just- yeah.
5: I mean, she was sort of, she did basically all of God versus best known films. She did State of Sea. She did The Confession. She was sort of, she was sort of his editor, um, you know, and then, you know, I obviously went on to work, work with a lot of other people too, but, but clearly you had one of those people that, that directors form a connection with and go back to over and over, which to me is always, you know, a sign of an, a really good editors when you have really good filmmakers going, I want that person doing all my movies. Uh, you know, you see it with Scorsese and Thomas Schumacher or whatever. I mean, that stuff is really to me bespeaks somebody who really must be bringing a lot to the table.
2: She did another movie that came out that same year 1969 which I think really falls into kind of the same idea of this political thriller which is Army of Shadows the Melville film and this yes. whole idea of you know the chickens coming home to roost after the uh the the resistance government and all that. I mean that's a, another fantastic movie from the same year which also kind of bespeaks to all the political turmoil of 1968 being able to dredge up the films that we got in 1969.
5: You know, one, one apropos of nothing thing I want to just bring up, but it so struck me watching the film last night for the first time in a little bit. Eric, you're talking before about the fight in the back of the truck and there is something sloppy and messy, which I actually really appreciate because that feels like what real fights always look like to me is sloppy and messy. Like whenever you see real people actually fighting, it never looks like fights in a movie, but not only is it sloppy and messy in a way that I really love, those scenes were damn dangerous. I mean, these are the yeah. real actors in the back of a moving van with no obvious restraints, throwing each other around and I mean, and it doesn't look like there's no trick photography there. It's almost made very cheaply and 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 you know, and I tried to check it out and it does sound like, you know, there were no stunt people, there were no I mean, this was the actors in the back of a moving car wrestling with each other. And the danger level that in fact they actually fall out of the car and it's like that was the actor. I'm sure they were padded, but like you, you know, that's there's a level of reality in that. That for good reason you don't see in many movies. But watching it, and I think when I was younger, I wasn't so aware of the, of the process of filmmaking. But now, watching this time, I was so aware of how much of this was was actors really putting their bodies on the line, which is kind of amazing.
1: This film was done on a really
2: low budget, from what I understand. The I think like seven hundred
5: fifty thousand. Now, and in, in today's dollars, that would be more, but it was still small.
2: And yeah, you're right, it was the actors actually doing their own stunts, and I always wonder, Do they come back to that little guy who jumped on the truck? Because he was amazing. I was so happy when he did that.
1: They do. He shows up later on during the interrogation.
2: Okay, so, thank goodness. I, I guess I didn't necessarily recognize him unless he's standing amongst the crowd, and you just see how freaking short that guy was. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he, he's not a dwarf, but he's getting close.
1: Yeah, and he didn't seem young, quote unquote, either which makes those that fight scene even the even more kind of amazing that both these actors are doing their own stunts one of them was no spring chicken by any means later like much later on when he's going through like different people he's interrogating and interviewing cuz I was wondering throughout
2: the rest of the film what happened to that guy what happened to that guy what happened right yeah it was fantastic And yeah, you're right. The editing of those scenes in particular, especially in the magistrate's office, Keith, I think you specifically brought this up. The whole idea of the camera will move to the investigator, to the magistrate, and he'll be talking to one person. It'll move back and it'll be a different person sitting across the table. And it just is so smooth the way that we are going from person to person. And again, you've got that fantastic score. I love the one montage where um, he's asking questions and the typist is typing. And I don't know if the typewriter was added to the song or if the song actually has a typewriter in it. But I love the way that that typewriter is almost the percussion for that um, particular piece of music. And it just it works so well.
5: Yeah, it's a good question. I wonder if that was – yeah, I'd like to know if that was part of the music or a piece of sound design because the film is beautifully sound designed. I mean you you, you mentioned it in, in terms of other scenes, but throughout the movie, sound is is wonderfully as much a part of what they seem to be doing as as images. I mean it seems like they really you know use both sides of the, both of those senses, and I, I have a feeling that was probably something they added into the music, but it does very much become
2: part of the music. There's one piece of music that isn't by the the gentleman who composed or had the music. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it, 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 that story about him just say, saying go ahead, use any of my music that you want. I love that story on the the extras. But there's one piece of music that isn't his, which is when uh, Vago is going into the pinball uh, place, into the bar to pick up that kid. Um, And that's a piece of music called Psych Rock by Pierre Henry, or Henri, it probably is. And I think I'm going to be falling into a weird rabbit hole of uh, psychedelic French rock in the next few days, because that song (laughs) (laughs) was fantastic it really is it's really cool and i love when he kicks his heels up in the air like he just has no care in the world which really makes his downfall even sweeter for me all right we're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages
3: just a few of the things famous people say about the After Movie Diner podcast. Hello, I'm Dame Judy Dench, and when I'm not dusting the submarine, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast. You know, for the film reviews. Hello, I'm Eric Stoltz, and when I'm not taking Uncle to the pictures, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the interviews. Hello, I'm Lewis Gossett Jr., and when I'm not trampolining for peace, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the music. Hello, Bernie Torpin here. And when I'm not undermining Venezuela, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the guests. Hello, I'm Celia Emery Stumpdouble. And when I'm not wanking for tumors, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the comedy. Hi there. I'm Ali Sheedy. And when I'm not taking photographs of bricks, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast mostly for the pancakes. Yes, that's right. The award-winning After Movie Diner podcast is all things to all people. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podbean, Facebook, Twitter, and at www.aftermoviediner.com.
2: How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 4. The Robin O'Sherwood Method. Remove the character from the scripts and replace him with an entirely similar character create a highly elaborate scenario that puts the new character into the same situation as the original the transition is completed when the replacement character adopts the same name as his predecessor for more about british science fiction television listen to the british invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com
1: I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for
2: free. I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host, film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertreestories.com.
3: This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly resent at proudlyresents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun.
2: right we're back and we're talking about Z and you know Eric I think you mentioned or I can't remember it might have been you Keith Uh, it's been such a good discussion I'm like just you know it's like I'm watching a, a tennis match of you guys going back and forth it's fantastic the whole idea of Jackie Kennedy I was so reminded of the Kennedy assassination while I was watching this especially when they were doing the playback scenes of Z and those different interpretations of what might have happened. And it is really fascinating that this guy was assassinated just a few months before Kennedy was assassinated that he, I think it was may of 63. And so I think there was on purpose, a lot of those things in this movie. And then also that this, this coming out in 69 it's after just a wave of assassinations and just we know here in the states you know bobby kennedy and uh, malcolm x and martin luther king and all these other people that were assassinated but then watching again some of those extras on the disc and people are just listing out all these names of all of these different people that have been murdered around this time and it was just it was really chilling that was pretty much on the minds of a lot of people at the time.
1: And I don't know. I mean, Casagravas said that he never saw the Sapruder film. And therefore, there's no way this could have inspired how he handled this particular assassination sequence, either you know, through direction or editing. But I mean, I'm sure a whole succession of assassinations that were happening at that time had to have been on his mind when he made this film.
5: And I think it's part it was why it was so powerful at its time, because it was terrifying. I mean, that was and we were talking before about America being in a funny place right now. But there was I mean, the one thing we thank God haven't seen, however strange politics are right now in America, we haven't seen the success of killing of all sorts of I mean, there was beginning to be. I do remember that feeling that, oh, my God, if you rise up and criticize the government, even in America, you're going to get killed if you become a powerful force for change. And that was a terrifying thing. I mean, that had not been part of American history the same way. I mean, you had, had Abraham Lincoln assassinated, had, but it suddenly became like, oh, no, this is like becoming part of our normal thing now that if you are a Malcolm X, a Martin Luther King, a Bobby Kennedy, you're going to die. And that was, I think, very much on people's mind when that when the film came out, because it was terrifying. It was like, is this going to be the future of America? Are we going to become another banana republic where, you know, if you stand up, you'll be shot down? And whatever else has gone on in American politics, at least we seem to have, knock on wood, moved away from that. But at the time, I do remember that sense and why that movie spoke so powerfully to that sense in people.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Jeffrey Epstein thing is a whole different thing.
1: Yes. But really... Really? Jeffrey Epstein? Really? Anyway, I was going to say, I want to get back to Francois Bonard. I was like, while you guys were chatting, I just want to do some quick research because I found myself really interested in that part of it. She
2: won Best Editor, the Academy Awards for uh, Z. As she should have, because. Yeah, well deserved. The, it was just fantastic. I mean, this
1: film had many accolades. Uh it had five Academy Award nominations, it won Best Foreign Language Film, it won Best Editing, uh BAFTA Awards, there was five uh nominations, two of them they won, um, or one of them they won. Uh yeah, Cannes Film Festival, Jury Prize, Best Actor. Watching it now, you realize how influential this film has been. Because I think Keith mentioned earlier, you know, you, you could cite things like you know, Casagrafus' own missing or something like, you know, like I mentioned before, uh Salvador, or something like that. But I don't I can't recall any film before Z that did this kind of thing.
5: Yeah, nothing comes to mind. I mean it, it seemed it, it seemed pretty pretty trend setting and groundbreaking as opposed to trend following.
2: I rag on a lot of award shows a lot of times just because so often it feels like there are so much politics and all this involved in the awards. But every once in a while, they get it right. And this was definitely one of those. I mean, I can really see this just knocking the socks off of people and being such an important statement. And it's nice that a movie can be both entertaining and a statement. Like we were saying earlier... There wasn't the lone bugle. It wasn't presented to us like, this is an important movie. You know, it wasn't shoved down our throats at, um, you know, awards season. It's like, we're we're going to save this thing until December 20th. And we're going to make sure that you see this before <laughs> the end of the year. <laughs> and we're going to send you an Academy screener and put for your consideration in all the trade magazines. So, all right, good. But yeah, this it really hits home. And then I found it fascinating that this story continues to live on that the same book that this was based on was the basis of an Indian film from 2012. And I was so afraid to watch this movie. It's called Shanghai. And I was like, oh, my God, a Bollywood version of Z. I don't want that in my life. But I watched it today and... It's great. It really holds up. There's a musical number which takes place at what the equivalent for the Bolshoi is in this movie. So it feels very in the right place. There's a moment after they commit the assassination where two of the characters are celebrating and they are singing about Mother India. And it is this whole, like, we are super patriots right now because we have taken this guy out. It is, it's really interesting. It's very, very interesting. And, and just to see this whole idea of it's basically we want to, why it's called Shanghai is we want to take the idea of Shanghai being the center of commerce and we want to put it here in this spot in India and fuck everybody who's got. Uh, any sort of living quarters here. We're going to move them out. We're going to force them out. We're going to force change upon people. And we're going to do this in the name of progress. And we don't care how corrupt we need to be in order to force this progress on people. So it's really, it just, it has an actual real statement to it. And I was super surprised. The other thing, the funniest thing for me in this movie, and there was a little bit of humor, but the funniest thing for me was not necessarily intentional. I didn't realize that now there are warnings in certain films. I I don't know if it's all Indian films, but it was definitely in this. When characters were drinking alcohol, there was a little thing in English that said, alcohol consumption is injurious to health that came up on the bottom of the screen every time you saw someone with alcohol. Wow. Yeah, I was shocked. (laughs) Man. But, yeah, I highly recommend it. Shanghai 2012 is the year, and it is out on Netflix right now. So it's very easy to, to track down and see. I was afraid it was going to be as tough to find as the, uh, the weird Bollywood uh, knockoff of uh, Body Heat and uh, Double Indemnity.
0: <laughs> oh, man.
2: You got me,
5: guys! so...
2: All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
0: You. Oh, Jesus, mio padre. My
4: father. Mangiato carne umana e tremo di gioia. Ho ucciso mio padre. Mangiato carne umana. Sto tremando di gioia. Io e te, moglie, siamo alleati. Tu, madre, padre, io, padre, madre. La tenerezza e la durezza sono intorno a nostro figlio da tutte le parti. La Germania di Bonn, accidenti. Non è mica la Germania di Hitler. Si fabbricano lane, formaggi, birre, bottoni. Quella dei cannoni è un'industria d'esportazione. Alla salute degli ebrei, dunque, signor Klotz. Alla salute dei maiali, signor Herr Hitze. Infatti, infatti, infatti C'è un momento in cui la mia abiezione di maiale Col ventre capace di contenere un'intera classe sociale Attraverso il rimpianto del passato si purifica Ed è lì che io ho torto Invece, invece, invece C'è un momento in cui la sua abiezione di maiale Attraverso l'idea del futuro si fa ancora più cinica Ed è lì che lei ha ragione E allora, Julian, cosa aspetta ingrassare come un maiale? Oppure cosa aspetta dare del maiale a me? Eccoci arrivati al momento, in cui nessun tribunale potrà mai dire se in lei parla la ferocia o la pietà. Ben bene la nostra coscienza abbiamo stabilito di divorarti a causa della tua disobbedienza.
2: That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Pasolini's *Porcile*. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts Keith and Eric. Eric, what is keeping you busy these days, sir?
1: Uh, everything. I'm like flush with work. So I haven't been doing too much of my passion projects. Although a, f- my first job as a feature film editor, that film's been doing the festival circuit and been picking up some awards. So I want to give a shout out to my, uh, fellow cinephile, uh, co-host, Andre Joseph. He's a director and producer of that film. It's called Vendetta Games. And I'm very proud of him. Very proud to be part of that film. So I, that was my last big creative thing and, Around February, I'll be shooting and editing a action movie short, my first time doing that. So I'm very excited about the guy who's directing it, uh, conceiving it. He's a fight choreographer, so it's his chance to create sort of his sizzle reel, so to speak. But that should be
2: pretty interesting. And Keith, what's going on in your world?
5: I'm going to be heading off to the in Chicago in February, which will be... Very cold. Um, And I'm doing doing, the last two episodes of season four of Fargo, which is a show I keep going back to because I I really love it as a viewer and it's really fun to work on. So I'm happy to be going back to that. And I just finished working on a a new series, uh, like a limited series that AMC is doing called uh, Dispatches from Elsewhere, which I think premieres in – february and i didn't want to be episodes of it it's actually i really like it and i kind of think i think it may be one of those things that'll fly under the radar so i i like to let you know mention it and like people aware of it it's the actor jason siegel who's one of the nicest human beings in the world created it he wrote the pilot and directed the pilot episode and is in the show and sally field's in it and and richard e grant and it's very odd and very funny and very sweet and very strange and it's one of those things that I could see people not being aware of, so I hope people will stumble into it, because it's just really cool
2: and, and pretty unique. I actually started to see uh, articles about it. I was super excited, because I was like, oh, this is the thing thing that Keith was talking about. Well, I'm,
5: I'm glad that they're getting the word out a little bit, because it's just, you know, it's just, it, it's very surreal and weird, but many surreal and weird things done for TV are very dark, and this has actually got a very sweet heart. Uh, it's almost like a fable for grown and, and I just think Jason did a great job and I didn't know him before this, but like, I mean, I consider the guy a friend for life now, so
2: I really wanted to do well for him. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
1: I'm <laughs> sorry.